0: Ladies and gentlemen, guess what? I have an incredible show for you today with an incredible individual. For those who may not know, I just want to take a moment to introduce the incredible Serena. And I hope everyone is prepared to dive into a mind-expanding conversation with an extraordinary individual, a trailblazing business attorney and author Serena's passion transcends legal boundaries, focusing on the therapeutic potential of psychedelics, health, wellness, and mission-driven social entrepreneurship. From advising on psychedelic-assisted therapy to navigating the complexities of blockchain and cannabis, Serena is at the forefront of emerging industries. Join us as we explore the intersection of law, psychedelics, and purpose-driven entrepreneurship. Serena's journey from litigator to advocate for purpose-driven companies is a testament to her soul-aligned path. Harvard Law School alumna, advisor to Reason for Hope, and founder of Women in Psychedelics, Serena brings a kaleidoscope of experience is to our conversation. She's also the author of an incredible new book that you can see behind her. And I would recommend everybody go down to the show notes and give it a give the button a click and check it out, Dandelion Odyssey. Serena, thank you for being here today. How are you?
1: I'm good. How are you? Thank you so much for inviting me.
0: Yeah, I'm exto- I-, I think it was about a year since we've talked last.
1: Mm-hmm. It took me about a year to finish the book. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's interesting. It's first off, congratulations on the book. It's it's a and I want people to to understand a little bit about what goes into writing a book. And you know, some people say that like the the book may be a little autobiography though. The first book people put out is sort of an autobiographical in some ways. But maybe you could give people a little bit of background on why you wrote the book, how it got started, and what does it mean.
1: Yeah, um, all great questions. I think, I think they. I've heard since I was young that you write authors write what they know best, right? Uh, whether that could be learned through research or from their own experiences or observations or things like that. Um, but then there's also an aspect of imagination and creativity that goes into writing anything. Um, I've been thinking about this book for some time, my best friend was the one who encouraged me to write it for many, many years. And I resisted writing it because I think at the beginning, it was just sort of like, who would want to read my story? Or how can anybody even relate to that? And so I still resisted it. But then I had an experience where um, I was reaching an epiphany. And the question was asked of me whether I was going to write this story or not. And as the, you know, at the same time, psychedelics was becoming mainstream, Uh, more and more people are intrigued about psychedelics and psychedelic medicine. Um, I've, you know, worked with certain types of psychedelics in my healing journey, with psychiatrists and also abroad. And there was just something that was, um, you know, I wanted to tell the story about how like, what a journey would look could look like for somebody who is going through that process, because oftentimes we hear, Oh, people take have this condition and then they go and have a journey and experience with psychedelics and they feel much better. And Mm -hmm. there's like the, the problem at the beginning, and then the solution at the end. But I wanted to kind of dig a little bit deeper into like what goes into in the minds of somebody, or possibly goes into the mind of somebody um, in the in-between and I think it's also like a story that I was telling to me to, um, like my younger self. If I was younger, I wish I'd, somebody had told me a story like this, where it's kind of like it's hard on um, life can get hard. People, like we experience trauma, we experience traumatic events, um, and there's certain things, especially as kids, when we're, when I was growing up, there were a lot of things from my culture that wasn't explained to me in my family. Like we didn't really talk about emotions. And it sounds pretty cliche now in the Asian culture, but um, it's true. And what I've learned from my experience was that by working on myself, by changing myself, and that actually started to have ripple effects with my friends, my family, and it started changing those relationships. So I was trying to encapsulate in the first book, uh, Why a Search for the Rainbow Pearls, was that the protagonist's search was basically a search for Loving herself, finding her essence, and by finding her essence, she can start healing herself, and hopefully that um, that will create rippling effects throughout her life. And the goal for this, this story, the story Dandelion Odyssey, is that it would be like a three-part book. I don't know what's going to happen in the next in the future in the next books, but for this first one, it was really a message about returning to one's wholeness. I truly believe that we are born whole, we were born perfect and wonderful, but over time um, through our experiences growing up and the environments that we're around, we learn different messages and we learn different opinions and perspectives about ourselves as well as the world, uh, but particularly about ourselves. And those experiences you know, could be great experiences that have positive impacts, or it could be not so great experiences that have negative impacts. So the story of Waira is that she would just kind of go through that process where she was at a low, go through the process with the help of psychedelics of returning back to her own wholeness and being to start healing those parts of herself.
0: It's so awesome. You know, I can't help but see, like when I see the background behind you, like your head is perfectly framed in the explosion behind you. And what that makes me think about is the, the, explosion of your story like the beauty just radiating from the back of you and the courage it takes to to go through difficult times like you've gone through some but i think that your story and in this book you're giving people to you're giving people permission to explore the beautiful side of tragedy you know what i mean by that and that's really hard to see sometimes especially when you're in it especially when you're in a culture where we are not gonna talk about that we don't talk about bruno over here you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. But like, you're really inviting people into your life and saying, Hey, look at this. This is really hard for me to talk about, but I want to show it to you so that you guys can maybe take this pearl and, and see how it might be a pearl in your life. And it kind of brings right. me to my, yeah, go ahead. What do you got?
1: No, no, it's just, it's beautiful the way you see that, because I think, um, an aspect of the story, what I wanted to get at is there is, there are gems there are, there is light in the darkness. And, yep. And I've, um, with my healing journey, I've spent a lot of time in the dark and I grew to really feel really comfortable in that. And, but to the point where it subsumed me for a very long time, but it's over the process of like rediscovering myself, I learned to see that there was, um, there's still lessons to be learned. I, I can't really say there are reasons for everything, but, um but there were definitely nuggets of lessons and insights that I gained by having those experiences, and that was that was um, something I did try to imbue into the character Wyra. Is that you know, there she sees the world in pretty like bleak terms, especially in the beginning. But over time, um, the way psychedelics work sometimes is that it acts like a mirror yeah. to see our inner worlds. And it challenges our perspectives, uh, good and bad, you know. And by challenge, by mirroring, not just like, it's like um, it's like oh, you you can really she can really see the darkness, but also she can see the light, which she's not seeing. But the mm-hmm. psychedelics is mirroring that because it's already in her. So that's again, um, kind of going to tell people that I wanted to tell people that like, hey, um as cliche as it sounds like there is light at the end of the tunnel in the dark and the dark and the light, it just exists, coexists together. You can't really have one or the other.
0: Yeah. It's a great point. And I, there's so many similarities where, you know, sometimes in the height of a psychedelic experience, you're able to gain a different perspective And it makes you realize that you were in the dark about some things like you didn't have all the information or you were unable to see a different perspective of it. And writing kind of does that same thing. It allows you to portray yourself as the antagonist in a story, but you're also the author of the story. And in Mm -hmm. a weird way, it's this incredible shift in perspective when you can do that. And I think that's a big part about seeing the light is the perspective. You know, if you look at a camera the way it's, so photos are shot, it's all about perspective. And when we change the perspective, we change the lighting of the situation a little bit, right?
1: Right, definitely. I mean, it's all a lot. A lot of everything is about perspective. It's yeah. like I think. What what do they say? Like, is a half uh, is a cup half full, half empty, right? It's all perspective and shifting that perspective. Yeah. And I think there are moments now where, um, even in my life currently, there are times when something bad happens. I can choose to wallow my own self-pity, or I can choose to be like, okay, what can I learn from this? Well, this sucks. What else can I do differently next time? Or can I do anything about this? Maybe it is out of my control. And and then just being able to look at what's happening sort of from a third person observer's perspective. So it's not, I'm not so attached to any particular outcome. Although that Mm -hmm. still happens, right? But it's a constant- Process. It's a constant practice to be um, to be doing that, and I feel like I'm learning all the time. But at least um, one of the other things too that I wanted to promote with the book is the idea that psychedelics, medicine are can be used when inten- when used safely and intentionally can be powerful medicines, um, and especially in the psych, uh, in the Asian American space. Um, Talking about mental health is stigmatized. Drugs are highly stigmatized. But then, you know, if I'm writing a story about somebody healing with the help of psychedelics medicine, um, perhaps it could then help with destigmatizing and being able to push forward and have those conversations.
0: It's interesting to think about the role psychedelics can play in different cultures. And it it reminds me of my wife is Laotian. And I remember Mm -hmm. going over to to their house uh, about three years ago. We went over there and we were hanging out with their family. And her sister, Von Lee, has two amazing kids, Tyler and Lauren. And Lauren's getting ready to go away to school. And Tyler is just crushing. He's super smart. And Mm -hmm. when I left, I remember walking up to him and being like, Hey, I just want you guys to know I love you both. And I'm super proud of everything you're doing. And like their face got so red, they were like, what? But I could see that, like, they don't really talk about that too much. I gave them, like, a big hug, and they were like, yeah. it was so cool to see because I just saw them, like, explode with joy, like, on some level. Mm-hmm. But they were like, what are you talking about? You love me. You can't even say that. about mm-hmm. everybody. <laughs> yeah. But it was psychedelic in a way. So I, I know what you're saying, about, <laughs> how psychedelic medicine in different cultures can have mm-hmm. a profound effect on some level. And I, I, it's it's opening in some ways, the idea of psychedelics and cultures. Thanks for letting me share that.
1: Yeah, that's wonderful. I mean, uh, it's kind of like the same, like, I, what I've seen is that what I've learned is that, you know, in Chinese culture, at least with my family, specifically, it's like, they might not say it, but they're very good about showing it. It a lot of it revolves around food. It's like, have you eaten yet? Have you? Yeah. What about this? Like, even if you're stuffed, they're like, you know, have some more food, and they just want to make sure you're well fed. And that's yep. their way of expressing love. Whereas like, talking about it saying it saying you're proud of you it's like it's so foreign it's so foreign to the vocabulary that it's just not that comfortable but it doesn't mean but it's like it's the language right yeah, um okay. being able to understand each other's language and how what is being expressed in particular different ways um and it took me a while to even realize that <laughs> i was like even from with my mom is like that's how she expresses love yeah. and um it was just really foreign to me cause, because because I didn't understand.
0: Okay. So this brings me to this question. The rainbow pearls symbolize a path of unconditional self-love. How does this metaphor resonate with your efforts in creating a more? Okay, wait a minute. I'm going to come back to that question. I have another one first I want to ask you because it was close to it. Okay. Waira's encounters challenge her default modes of operating. How has your journey from a litigator to a business attorney aligned with your soul's path, challenging and reshaping your professional narrative?
1: I'm in the process of reshaping my professional narrative. So I think one, is started with, could I do it? Like, could I transition mm-hmm. from litigator to doing more? business transactions or just being a business attorney and helping startups yes. um, with uh, with um, social impact in mind. And it started out with, you know, challenging the fact that I was like, oh, I was only a litigator, this is all I can oh, do. You're
0: a litigator. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's this like, idea of like pushing past the limits. Yeah. I have this very narrow view of what I can do and what I am in terms of my identity professionally. And then once I saw that I could transition, you know, it it takes time, it takes effort, it takes a lot of um, work as well too. Um, So, but once I can start transitioning that, I think it's more about like, okay, what do I want to do with my career? What do I want to um, be of service to? And I think just, you know, my business partner and I, we talk for radical, we form Radical Law, It's a corporate boutique law firm, and we've been talking about social enterprises since we were in law school, but then we went the traditional path and then we came back and formed our own law firm because we wanted to infuse that as an ethos like supporting social entrepreneurship and promote that as an ethos of what we want to do with the work with the type of clients we want to work with and the way we're trying to um, be in the in the world as attorneys. And I think like that process is being played out, um, especially in terms of like the like who we're trying to support. Like right now, we're working with um, cannabis social equity applicants. We're also working with uh, businesses in the psychedelic space. We're also working with businesses that have like social good and social impact as uh, they're part of their mission and their PBCs, and they want to create good things in the world. Um, I think it's just now I'm real, I'm really coming around to the idea of creation, Like it goes beyond just like social impact and social entrepreneurship. But this idea of creations, like what can I create, whether it's a book, or whether it's just some art form, whether for myself, my friends, my family, or a greater community um, that I would like, I would like to put out, out into the world. And as I'm looking, we talked about startup spaces.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, I'm just like <clears throat> astounded and amazed and inspired by a lot of the creativity that people um, are coming up with, whether it's services or different types of products that they're putting out into the world, or different artworks and creative works. And there's just something very magical about that creative and the creation process. And I feel like that is becoming more and more as part of my professional identity is like, what can I create rather than just being like, I'm an attorney. It's more of like, even as an attorney, you're still creating something, whether it's documents or it could be a a podcast series or some kind of content, YouTube series or whatever it is, there's still this process of creating. And um, yeah, I'm just kind of, I'm very drawn to that and building that as part of my identity
0: you would be a phenomenal podcaster. I would watch your podcast. And I, I've, my question, you speak question so is, much,
1: I don't know. You, you're so much more comfortable in front of the camera than I am. So, and you seem like you're having a lot of fun.
0: I am. I've done 600 of them though, and like I wow. really enjoy it. And it's, okay. it's fascinating to me because, much like you, I feel like I'm getting to go and, and learn something every day. Like right mm-hmm. now, I'm getting to learn from someone who is an attorney. I get to learn from someone who's written a book. I get to learn from someone with a different culture and how they're tying this all together. Mm-hmm. And And that leads me to this question, and that is that, you know, you had said that at some aspect before the book, you thought maybe I was only a, an attorney, and now you're an author. Now you're a creative. Do you see that like every endeavor that you begin in is that a new piece of the puzzle, or is that like a new lens with which you can now see the world? Like, if you had to use a metaphor behind it, like, does it seem like you're adding pieces to the pole, the pole, adding pieces to the puzzle to become a whole, or how do you how do you see it metaphorically, or is there a metaphor through which you see this everything coming together?
1: Yeah. So. I see it as it's an expression of the whole
0: Uh, right yeah
1: I think in one of the scenes in the book it talks um Waira meets a character it's like this invisible character whose name is beloved um the beloved is really an expression of God um or what that might be to some other people the source of higher power and the beloved says to Wa'ira, like she is a creator. She's because in her journey, she's creating these magnificent galaxies, and um, it's all unfolding in her head. <laughs> but so, like, it, it's this. It goes back to that. It's this idea like we're all creative creatures. We're creative beings, and we create. You know, a lot of my teachers and mentors that even a thought is creating, right? So we create our realities, we create our habits, we create our thoughts, we create the services and the products, the artworks, the artistic expressions, a lot of these different things. Um, And I think if there's, I don't know if it's a metaphor, but it's just definitely like, that's the idea, that's the concept it goes back to. Um, And I think one of the things that with psychedelics is that it, unless you are practicing some, Thing, like mindfulness, meditation, or something yeah. that requires you to pay attention, I think psychedelics can help people be aware of what they're creating. And, and then I think once people can become aware, they can have more intention and choice as to what they're creating. So before I feel like I was creating, whether it's thoughts or a contract or something, because I was kind of going with the flow. Yeah. But then now it's a lot more intentional, like creating the book was a lot more intentional than, oh, I'm just going to write a book and see what happens. Um, and and I'm not saying like there's anything wrong with that. If You know, if people are just like, I want to write a book and like, that's great. That's the intention. Yeah. But it's more about, um, again, being purposeful and just understand I have a better understanding of why I do certain things or even if I don't know why I I know that I'm like I just want to create this because I want to express this and that's enough of an intention for me
0: it's so beautiful it it speaks to the idea of the creative spirit and what you just said when you play this back it's beautiful the idea that you come up with a character called beloved who is telling you you're here to create and you have translated this thing that happened to you on some level, beloved, be it a character, be it a nature scene, but something in your life was beloved and spoke to you, Serena, that was like, you need to get out there and start creating because Mm -hmm. you're beautiful. And these ideas you have can be contagious. And and through the book, you create this character that speaks to the readers, like the contagious nature of creativity that flows through us, (sighs) mind blowing. And you're doing that. Like you're a conduit for creativity and you're, it's 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 contagious out there like that's got to feel pretty good right
1: i think it feels exciting and scary <laughs> Wow, why is it scary well i think well so like i think fear and excitement i was Ooh. told by a wise person that the difference between the two is just the breath right mm. and it's a such it's a such a beautiful reminder yeah. i keep to myself every time i it's kind of like going on a roller coaster you're like oh it's yeah. gonna you know it's gonna drop and And it's scary. It's going to drop because it's a drop. But then at the same time, as long as I breathe, it's going to feel exciting. So it's that transition with the difference of the breath. And I say that it's scary and exciting exciting because it's unfamiliar. Like writing a book, publishing it, putting it out there, it's unfamiliar to me. I'm not 100% that comfortable with it. And at the same time, when I just take a breath, And I'm I'm so excited I get to come on this podcast and talk to you about it and your audience about this. It's like, then it feels um, exciting because that contagious character, the nature of ideas, Um, it's fascinating. You know, you just kind of see where it goes. And I've, I've looked at some of like a lot of businesses and books and works of art and whatnot. Sometimes it doesn't take hold for a while, but then something happens, like with artwork, it, you know, I heard like, with artwork, it could take decades, and then somebody might find value in it or value was created somehow through some, some some event. And then now it catches on fire, and then it just spreads and it becomes even more valuable. But um, same thing with ideas, sometimes it takes a little bit of time to catch certain ideas. But And then it spreads and spreads and spreads. But one of the things is that maybe I'm more aware of it now. A lot of the ideas that I've been trying to communicate through the book, they're not mine, they're not new, they're not novel, they're just translated and they're repackaged in a different way to fit that particular story. But the idea is that we're all creative beings, right? And we're we're born whole. Like that's been around in other cultures and other traditions and other religious. Believes in their teachings for a very long time, so it's like I, I can't take credit for all of that. And but the but the way we communicate these ideas might be new and might be uh, appropriate for the specific time.
0: Yeah, you know they say beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and sometimes somebody can see something and be like, I don't like that at all. But mm-hmm. it takes a real it takes imagination to. To coax the beautiful out of that which is not beautiful. And we admire that. Like when someone Mm. can look at this situation and go, I'm so sorry, but I learned so much.
1: You know (laughs) what I mean?
0: Like that's powerful right there. That's inspiring. And that's what we need, especially in times of transition, is people that can stand at the precipice and be like, Let me show you, come here, let me show you something. You know, and are you scared or are you excited and it, it's it's what we need right now and i really think that we we are on the precipice of creating a new world and it's it's people having the courage to say you know what i'm more than a litigator i'm also an author and i'm also these things because that lets somebody else do it like there's a young george or a young serena out there that is maybe going through their trials and tribulations mm-hmm. and when they see you talk about the difference between excitement and and fear like Oh my God, maybe that hits home for them. Maybe that's the the rip, maybe that's the calm pond, and you just threw a little stone in there. And now it's rippling outward. And people can read the dandelion odyssey and be like, wow, I'm totally affected by it. It's it's mesmerizing to think about. Let's talk about art and, and the cover of the book. Like what, what is the symbolic nature of the cover of that book? It seems pretty like it's got some deep roots to it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I really appreciate the graphic artist who translated my stick figures into this beautiful artwork. <laughs> I literally gave them stick figures and they, and they did magic. Um, so, you know, the girl in the middle is supposed to represent the protagonist and she's holding, I think like a dandelion that's kind mm-hmm. of like spreading. Um, dandelions, like that's a metaphor for me specifically. And dandelions have a lot of seeds. And the way I feel like with the character's journey is, and I feel like with the life's journey is that mm-hmm. we're drifting into the air. We're drifting, drifting, drifting until the sea finds a home, the ground, and then, you know, takes root and then grows into another dandelion yeah. where like the weed and then grows into another dandelion and yeah. then they keep propagating. So it's kind of like an exp- a metaphor for the drifting that we might be doing in the life. Um, but then at some point we do settle down, we ground down and, um, and then, and then we propagate, we continue to propagate, but, um, I personally, for me, dandelion was just like, um, it, I felt very like for a long time, my, in my journey, I felt like I was drifting a lot. And yeah. then when I returned home to myself, that was kind of like the dandelion, falling into the ground, the seed taking root, and then growing into another beautiful dandelion. So that's what it meant for me. So it's like, again, going back to the theme of the story and the message is like, finding wholeness, you can't really find that outside of yourself, it's really within you. And when you feel connected to yourself, that's when you feel the most whole and the most grounded and, and secure and, and rooted in who you are.
0: Yeah, it's it's beautiful. To think of the metaphor of the dandelion floating and then finding a seed that grabs hold and you know on some level you look at the life cycle like all of a sudden now you're creating this new dandelion and it's just this mm-hmm. system of rebirth and growth and you know it's uh, let me let me send a shout out to everybody that's talking to us. We got Diggs, he says what's up. We got Michelle Thank you for chiming in, Michelle. She says, "I love that. The difference is the breath." That was a beautiful quote. And she says again right here, "Oh my, how cool to come across this! What gorgeous wisdom! Entering the age of Aquarius is a time for the people. We are finding our tribe." You know, it's it's interesting to think about the changes that are happening. And I love the symbolism that you that you use about nature. Where something like obviously you have you spent time looking at dandelions and like why the dandelion? I mean, I, you talked a little bit about what the metaphorical is, but have you always been attracted to dandelions or what's the symbolic nature of that? Have they always spoken to you?
1: Yeah. It's just the, it's the only plant that I know that has a lot of seeds. It looks like a very puffy yeah. ball and that, um, but it's so light. Like it goes and spreads and flies into the wind and you don't know where it's going to land. Uh, it might be close by. It might be a little bit further down. Um, but it's the only plant that does that. And it's a very, very tough weed. <laughs> yeah. Dandelions are very tough weed. So it's a, again, another um, point about us individuals, like we're very resilient. We're very yeah. tough in our own ways. And we many of us have gone through a lot of traumatic events in our lives or experiences or just like right. tough times. Uh, even if they're not traumatic, like tough times, like life can get really tough. And but us being alive us living the life that we're living being around the people that we're living it's just it's a testament to our resilience
0: you know it's it's fascinating to me to get to talk to people and talk about their relationship to the environment like both of us have had some really amazing experience with plant medicine but i also think it's incredibly fascinating i think that the plants with which people choose to describe their lives by seem mm-hmm. to embody the same characteristics of them. And it sounds to me like you're really tough. It sounds to me like maybe some of your mindset is like, I have all these different ideas and I know one of them's gonna take hold. Like, mm-hmm. is, is that kind of accurate? Or what do you think about that?
1: I hadn't thought about it that way, but yes. I mean, the drifting, the toughness, and but also like the lightness. But now I see like, you know, with so many different seeds that we plant, um, something was bound to take hold. <laughs>
0: You know what I, I really like about it, too, is like you described how beautiful it is. And like you've kind of given an homage to it on your book. And in a way, I hope you see what you're really saying is how beautiful you are. And it's an homage to you. Like you are that beautiful. This thing that you see in nature is so beautiful. Like that's a reflection of you, Serena. All those strengths, all the drifting, all the seeds. Like that's what you're doing. Like that's that plant is calling to you. And it's like, hey, we're the same. <laughs>
1: That's a good point. That's a
0: good point. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. I actually saw in a vision of mine as well too. Um the light was shining on it and um it was but it was calling to me. It was the only plant and it wasn't supposed to be where the environment was supposed to be, but it was there and I saw like this cause like a dandelion when when it flowers, it's this yellow flower, uh, or the, the yellow dandelion I was thinking about and it was flowering that in a jungle, which it wasn't supposed to be, so
0: a creative person in the world of law like imagine that like here here's this yellow dan
1: (laughs) yeah but you know like a lot of um there there are many authors who are attorneys like john grisham writes a lot of books legal books and you know there's a lot of legal dramas out there
0: (laughs) a ton of them a ton of them
1: ton so people who are attorneys like or any profession where it has a stereotype that we're kind of um, stuffy, you know, and conservative and whatnot. There are a lot of creative souls in in those professions as well as in any profession.
0: It must be interesting to be, in, in some ways, if if we take the idea of the lawyer and like, you have to be around incredible stories all the time. Like you are around high tense emotional, emotional events that are happening and it's like it's kind of like being in a novel in a way, right? Like you're this person that's like in the novel and you're trying to figure out what's happening here. How do we what words should we come up to, to describe what this event right here, it's it's an interesting concept. Well,
1: oh, how do you mean? Like we are talking about like the events I experience as an attorney versus as an author?
0: Yeah, like is, it, are are there some similarities and some differences?
1: I think um I think being an author, there was just like a lot more events going on in my head, like, because I was writing a novel, right? So that require a lot more imagination, but um, but it's also requires like a lot of thinking through how to translate that imagination in my head onto paper. So I think the similarity is sort of the communication process. It's all, it's a writing process. So with law, uh, there's a lot of I mean, real practice of law is not as interesting as what you see on on TV. But what is interesting, though, is like thinking through um, the arguments of something or like the strategy of how do you how do you get something? The client wants a specific has a specific goal in mind, like how do you get to that if possible, if at all, because sometimes it's not possible. Um, so the strategy, and then sometimes like, cause you're dealing with people all the time and dealing with money. So there is always high stakes. There's always emotions involved, whether people wanna admit it or not. And we, as the lawyers are supposed to try to mitigate, um, you know, deal with emotions that do come up or concerns that clients have and figure, cause at the end of the day, it's still very much a people oriented, relationship oriented service that we're providing. Um, but, and then it's the communicating of what we thought, what we are thinking, our thoughts, our perspectives, our advice to the client a way that they will understand and depending on the sophistication of the client, it changes the way our we communicate with them. Um, and then with as an author, when I'm writing, like what I'm imagining in my head, and I have to translate that again, it's just like, okay, thinking about how this will come out, usually I write without any filters. Mm -hmm. Um, And then once but then I go through many revisions process. And towards the end, I'll read it to myself. One of my editor told me to read it to myself three times. And as I'm reading to myself, I'm like, Oh, this doesn't sound good. So then like, that created that prompted me to change how I would communicate a sentence or a phrase or something like that. Um, So again, it's, it's like, as we're creating, as I'm creating, I'm also learning about communicating. Um, how do I communicate yeah. with different people? And that is very similar whether I'm an author or I'm in um, a, an attorney. I think with an attorney, I can see it more um in real time. But then as an author, I think it depends. when I hear from readers, that's when I'll know um how i've I could have uh, like how they've related to the book, what touched them, what what was right. um, what was good in, um, you know, what what was good in the message that they receive? because everybody's at different points in time and they might receive certain messages that um, some things might speak to them more than others.
0: Yeah. It's, it's sort of like, once you, once you release a creative endeavor into the world, like you never know which part is going to inspire someone, you know, maybe, maybe something that you thought was a minor detail could be something that could really shift someone's focus or really ship, you know, put a giant smile on their face on some level. It's kind of the surprise Mm -hmm. of creativity.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I I hope it inspires people because the opposite can be true that they don't feel inspired. And, but I think again, it's, it's just sort of like whatever goes, my book is not meant to speak to everybody. It's meant to speak to the souls that are, that will resonate with the message I'm trying to convey.
0: I like that term because I I think what happens in in creative endeavors is you're really translating your emotional state into a different medium and then passing it on to somebody else. And that's Mm -hmm. where the real magic happens. Like if you create with an intention to inspire, when someone reads it and is inspired by it, like that, that's the magic of creativity. Like you have really just transferred this emotion to someone Mm -hmm. through a whole nother medium, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Especially like when we look at art or listen to music right it's just like especially music when some music just makes me feel a certain way some music makes me want to work some music makes me want to dance uh some music makes me just want to feel at peace and there's just you know something about that um i don't know how to explain it but it really it talks to us um to our to the core of our bodies
0: yeah And there's this weird slippery slope that kind of happens too. Like when, you know, when we, when someone, and I understand the reason behind it, but I want to get your opinion and we could talk about some of the, the ideas behind it, but like you create something that becomes beautiful and it inspires somebody else. And then they want to take part of that creation and echo it and amplify it. But sometimes, especially in law, like we, we have these really stringent, like patent ideas. Like this is my idea and I want you to like it, but you can never use it. Like on some ways that kind of stifles innovation, not so much with artwork, but on some level, like, do you think that there's a, there's sort of like a loggerheads right there? Like on some level, our, our need to own our own idea and not let it free stifles what that idea could become later. Like it stops its growth on some level. What do you think?
1: I, there's, um we can have a whole conversation. About it. <laughs> I think it's particularly nuanced. Like I know it came up with the debate with respect to um, psychedelics uh, in the biotech space, right? Um, there's different reasons why people will want to patent and own certain things. Mm -hmm. And at least from what I understand from speaking with patent attorneys that I know, having patents is a way to incentivize people to innovate so that when they innovate, they can then benefit from the fruits of their labor. But what's happened too is that you've got pan trolls, you've got people by create by patenting. they're excluding other people from the innovative uh, right. method, idea, technology, whatever it is that they created. So I think in one way, I sympathize and I empathize with the folks that are creators, they're creating something. But then I also understand like there's financial reasons, business reasons, um, economic innovation, stimulation reasons, yeah. why ownership is important to stimulate and support innovation. But it doesn't happen in all contexts, right? And I think there's also the open source movement in technology where instead of just, you know, you could put people, people can put their software out there. And have people innovate, like multiple people innovate for the like, so that everybody can access it. But the thing is that some people are going to start innovating and improving on it. You get a you get a better product out there. Um, I think there's room for all of the, explore, the exploration of all of these paradigms and different incentives to see where like who's going to win. But in our capitalistic culture. Um, without innovation, there might also not be dollars or investments made into certain types of innovation. Um, And again, I think it's just it's a little bit hard to say. um, In that context, like I don't have, I can feel for both sides. And I think, for me, like this artwork, like this book, I have automatically I have a copyright to the book. Um, I do plan on registering it as a copyright because I did create this book Uh, and that protects I I don't know how long copyright is for but I think it's for like the life of the author plus some years or something like that or it's a very long time. Um, If somebody were to um, want to create derivative works or stuff like that they would have to get permission from me if it's deriving from this story. And I benefit from that, uh, from this work and in, in terms of future work that's created and all of that. So there is like this financial incentive to create as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's been in like the music world, there's a lot of debates going around, like, you know, with Spotify, the licensing of the, the streaming of the, of the music, but making sure musicians are paid um, a fair amount for their music, but they're paid very, very little per stream. Yeah. On Spotify and other um, streaming uh, platforms. And and the the idea is like, there's this tension, always. uh, Or what I've seen so far is that the tension between like, who's controlling the mechanisms of distributing and transmitting it to Mm. large scale of people, and the people who are creating the music. And I think it's like part of a supply chain in a way. (laughs) So you have to create the uh, creative work, whatever that may be. And then they have to go either on a platform, either on um, YouTube podcast, or whatever it is to have like people get access to it. But but the people that are kind of acting in those middleman roles, creating the platforms, they are also innovating, they're also creating, they're creating a platform that allows people to access it. So there's value that they're creating as well, it's just like the creators creating a value in their innovative creative work. Um, but i think the question becomes like what is fair for everybody for comp for compensation and um and then there will always be i think people out there who want to um access music without paying for or access i mean that happens all the time yeah, <laughs> but right? it's a constant it's a constant. i think it's just a constant challenge and a constant tension in all of this Um, And it comes down to the question, like how much people value creative work to the point where they'll pay for it. You've got Netflix that or other streaming platforms, again, creating content that they stream only on their platform to entice people to come and buy subscriptions and whatnot. Um, But then you're not able to access it anywhere else. So this is all just to say, like, I think sometimes it could, the ownership piece could deter others from creating if it's like i think the ownership piece in, in incentivizes people to create mm-hmm. but then like maybe the process of panning or like people coming in and buying up pans or just panning for things that may not may be questionable that kind of could drive people out or push people out from continuing to innovate um and and then at the same time it's like it's like what is the right balance to compensate and also incentivize people to keep creating, whether something yeah. they can or they could create a copyright or a trademark. And from a legal perspective, it's really a question about property. It's a question mm-hmm. of political property. So um, that's what I'm saying, like, there's a more very nuanced discussion about all of this. And there's also philosophical discussions, too. But to create an artwork, whether it's a company creating something that they can patent, or it's um, an individual creating uh, a painting, a song or a book or whatever, all require some kind of investment. And what are they? It could be investment of dollars, it could be investment of time, energy, effort. Um, Some creative projects take a really long time to do. Um, But again, it's just like, what is that balance? I know, like some people were Upset about companies patenting molecules that mm. have been in existence for a very long time. So I don't know exactly all the all the rules and the regulations with respect to like how a patent is granted because I'm not a patent attorney. But you know, there's questions about that. I mean, if the USPTO, the agency that grants um, trademarks, copyrights, and patents, if they find that this is innovative, it's new and and deserves a patent, they may grant it. But again, it's like that's where a lot of the the debate and also like the lawyers that are involved, like they would make the case to the USPTO, like, hey, this is panable. We deserve to get this pan or whatnot. I'm sure there's more that goes into yeah. it than what I'm saying. Um, but it's yeah, it, it's like I, I think it's just very nuanced and it depends on who you're looking at. Um I think some creators might feel like "Wait, the way we're being compensated it's not enough like we put in so much work but then at the same time the market might not value the creator's work as much as the creator values it (laughs) all these different um perspectives that's happening um and it's a question of like how do we deal with this intellectual property
0: wow that is nuanced it's amazing to to see how deep that goes it's it's interesting to think what we value and what we'll pay for and what creativity is. And how do you even put a value on creativity? And it's interesting to think about all that kind of stuff. Is that is that something you thought about when did, when you think about that? Does that inspire you to create more? Or is there any sort of things that flow when you think about that? Like, well, I don't know. I guess I... It's interesting to think about the relationship between creativity and monetization. But for me, that like mm-hmm. those two things kill each other. When I think about monetization, it kind of takes away my creativity. What do, what it can't.
1: It, can. it definitely can't. If you put it simply in that way, it can't. <laughs> right. Because I didn't create a book um, because I was trying to make Right. right. I mean – if I can recoup my costs, great. And yeah. if I can continue to spread the message and becomes a bestseller, great. Right. But that's not the initial intention going in. Um, and at the same time, I was told, like, books are not really good at making money. <laughs> but nonetheless, like, I wanted to put that story, the story yeah. out there, because that was more important to me. And writing it, there was something motiv- something else mm-hmm. motivating me, Um But that's not to say that money and creativity are mutually exclusive. You can Mm -hmm. have a creative artwork that started from a different motivation, different intention, and then come along. Money just came along with it. And then Mm -hmm. that allows more money means more investment to create more, whatever that innovation or that creative work might be. Um, I think in some artistic expressions where the monetization if that's the primary driver i can see that to kind of dampen creativity i think that's very possible maybe from some other people it's not they might not see it like oh no they're still able to be creative but it's sort of like if you, if I'm thinking about unbridled creativity, right? It's really not coming from, at least for me, it's not coming. Yeah. From like, hey, monetization. It's right. coming from somewhere within me. Um, and again, I don't think it's like I don't think I think creatives also deserve to be compensated for what yeah. they do create. But if that, like, if a creative, their only way is to to feed themselves, to make money, and sustain a livelihood is through their creative work, then that is part of their incentive as well. But would it stop them? Possibly not as well. There are a lot of people who create without the need to monetize without like trying to make it big. For example, if somebody wants to create artworks for themselves, or they want to show off to their friends, um, I think that's great. But then I think with tools nowadays too, it's easier to monetize their creative works. I think that's also a wonderful opportunity for those creators. Yeah, and it seems kind of mutually exclusive. That's all I'm saying.
0: No, it makes it makes perfect sense, and it, it. I think it's interesting that the tools out there to monetize are are more easy accessible as to are the tools to create are more accessible. So it's kind of cool to see them working together. Like, hey, these things are growing together. Mm -hmm. You know what? When we start thinking about that, I once heard a quote that said that the best predictor of future behavior is past relevant behavior. And it seems to me with this reemergence of the world of psychedelic expression that maybe we're on the cusp of beginning to see new school buses being painted and touring the country or a new a new Jimi hendrix or a new fleetwood mac or a new Doors, or something like that and with it seems to me that psychedelics tend to go hand in hand with creativity and i'm curious like do you see the, the this explosion in tools to create and tools to monetize as sort of the next wave of an explosion in creativity like we had in the 60s maybe
1: um, I'm not too sure about the creativity in the 60s, like what tools they have. <laughs> but I have seen because um, I used to be a, I, I used to not use social media as much. One, I didn't understand it as well. And then two, um, my work, I was just too busy to really get involved in it. But now I'm seeing a lot of people online. Uh, and I'm using it more for myself, for my business, and also just trying to understand the tools more. And I am seeing more again, it could just be a bias where I'm looking at it now. And I'm because I'm looking at it now, I'm like, oh, it's actually been increasing and <laughs> expanding. Yeah. I didn't realize all of this was happening. It could have been happening like years ago. and probably right. was to get to the point where it is right now, right? Um, I I like to see the fact that things are changing, but that's kind of like the constant with anything right. in life, the way we were creating before, even 10, 15 years ago. Uh, was limited like now on youtube growing up with youtube in the beginning it was just like all these silly videos like cat videos and you know these um more amateur style videos that are just like funny home videos that people were creating and they're putting on youtube and but they were still like for laughs and giggles they were great but okay. now like youtube content on in 2023 is so much and 2024 is like so much more sophisticated. Like they're influencers, they're YouTube creators, they specifically create on YouTube platform. And individuals who I might never have seen or heard talk before, I'm able to access them on YouTube and their content and whatever they're putting out there, um, depending on my interests and stuff like that. And um, it's definitely going to keep expanding as our technological capabilities keep expanding. Mm-hmm. And with the introduction of AI, it's only, I don't, I mean, I imagine that there's going to be even more expansion. I'm curious yeah. to, w- to see what it would look like. Um, I, I know there were concerns that, you know, so from some of the creative communities, it's like, oh, well, we're going to lose our jobs or something like that. I don't know, possibly, but does that also mean that there's opportunities that they can use these tools to innovate even more? Um, it kind—I of, think it remains to be seen. I see both potentials, um, but it kind of remains to be seen, like, well, will actually happen.
0: I I love the way you said that, and it reminds me when I was a kid growing up. You know, there was. Like fifteen channels, and then there was cable. But I remember the first one of the first things that I that was really funny as a kid was like America's Funniest Home Videos, and it really wasn't on the internet. It was like a TV show, and you would watch yeah, it, yeah. and it would just be like just outlandish stuff like animals falling or a dad hitting his kid with a bat or the kid <laughs> hitting the dad with a bat, you know? Like, and it was silly and it was really funny. But when yeah. you look back at that as a snapshot of what was to come and you see the evolution of the home video go from like this funny thing that happened in your family to this young kid who can play the piano at the age of five to this other person that can create animated videos. What you're really seeing is the expansion and a definition of what is possible. And I hope people can look back on that and see the long-term change that's happening, right? Like Maybe people aren't going to lose their jobs to AI, Maybe people are giving an opportunity to redefine who they are. And we see it with the book that you wrote. We see it with what you're doing. Hey, you can be all these things now. And yeah, you can look at it through that small lens of like, oh, no, it's going to crash. But wait, is that what's happening? Or are we expanding? Each individual yeah. is given the opportunity to become the best most cool interesting version of themselves and they can do it right now they can just turn on their camera and they can act wild and they can say hey look at this weird skill that i have you know and like see if people like it like that is exciting to me and i i hope more people harness that because i think that that's where we're moving to Definitely, I
1: totally agree. and I love your enthusiasm and energy. and it goes the same for you, too. You're doing podcasts, you're building the true yeah. life podcast, but you have your day job as well, too, and you're defining who you are. and true. you're interested in learning about the startup space. And I think again, it's like change is, I just believe that change is possible. It might yeah. not be easy. It, the transition yeah. might be really difficult for people um yes. my transition period for myself going from a litigator to like doing business law work it was difficult I had a lot of I had self-doubt I was like I don't know if I can yes. do this but until I started to see the evidence I can do this but I I there was still something in me that kept pushing me and to keep on going and keep on going and, and I eventually found the support and the the resources that I needed to be able to succeed And I'm still working through that whole transition period, but it's just, it's not easy. You know, I think it feels easy once we're on the other side, but whenever we learn anything new, like doing, we're learning a new skill set. If I'm trying to learn a new language, it's not going to be, it's not going to be easy in the beginning. I'm going to fumble. I'm going to stress out. I'm going to like doubt myself and get frustrated. I'm like, why is it not coming to me? But it's like with anything, once we have the repetition, we see it over and over and over again, um, it does get easier. It's the pathway is being built in our brain, so it just gets easier.
0: Yeah, I love it. It's you know it speaks to this idea of self discovery, and it's it's when we find ourselves in patterns, whether maybe mm-hmm. like I was a UPS for 26 years, and I was really good at it, and I liked it, but something was gnawing at me on the inside, and I was dying inside, and I started like my relationship started dying in some ways, and I was like I cannot like. The spirit or Gaia or Waira, whatever you want to call it, was calling to me. I had to change something and I did. But it was really scary. It's like, I'm gonna go try this other thing that I've never done before. And all these like negative thoughts that I'm like, Are you sure? What about your family, man? You greedy punk. You're gonna do something you wanna do? Is that what you want to do? You leave yeah. everybody behind? You know, and all this doubt creeps in, but you start being forced to confront things that you put away in a deep closet somewhere. For me, it was like, I, I didn't want to go back to school. And I was like, ah, school is dumb. Like, it doesn't make any sense. And my wife was telling me, like, what is your hang up with school? Like, what <laughs> is it? Like, it's not dumb. People go there to learn, and there's really cool things that happen there. I'm like, it doesn't make sense. And she's like, she got, she get real mad at me because I took this class like a bunch of times and I just dropped out every time. And she's like, listen, dummy, you have a huge problem. What is it? And she got real mad at me. And finally, I was like, school doesn't make sense to me. And then I just blurted out, when I went to school, I had problems learning and everybody thought I was dumb. And like I just st- I almost started crying and I was like, oh my God, that's what it was. That's why I don't like school because I, th- I equate school with yeah. people thinking I'm done because I had a learning disability and I don't want to go back to that. But as soon as you are aware of it, you, don't, you you as soon as you become aware of something, you no longer have to put it away and be afraid of it. It's like, oh, that was a stupid thing to think. So what? I had a learning disability. I don't need to have that anymore. I can fix it. And then now I'm able to go back and take these classes because I don't have that mental block. But I just use that as an example because it's really hard to get out of old patterns because you've yeah. you've you've been in this pattern for so long. But the path of growth must be chosen over and over again, and that's when you can expand. When you let go is when you can begin expanding again. Thanks for letting me share that. Like I yeah, I no, that's
1: beautiful that, yeah. that you you <laughs> finally admit it to yourself. Like sometimes yeah, admitting to ourselves is the hardest. Like what we are telling ourselves not to say yep. we may have limitations, but that doesn't mean we can't push past them. And yeah. then it, when we start to really be honest with ourselves, that's, that's the start of expanding. It's like, that's the start of the change because if you don't even know what is holding you back, that thing will always have control over you or you give control to it subconsciously consciously. And until you're ready to release that, then, um, that it's just gonna keep holding you back.
0: It's and it's so interesting to think about this path of ther- our therapeutic pathway. You know, as a as someone who's written a book and as someone who has worked with psychedelic medicines before, it it becomes impossible to not understand on some level generational trauma. Cause sometimes you realize, hey, this thing that's happening to me happened to my dad, it happened to my mom. Why am I holding on to this? Or can I be the yeah. person that breaks through this? You know, like, what well, maybe you could speak to that idea of of how generational trauma, writing, and psychedelics work to help you understand yourself better.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, so generational trauma, I've only come to under- start understanding it and looking at it in the last few years, Again, it was a concept that might have floated around in my head, but I didn't fully understand. <laughs> and I'm still learning about it. Sure, me too. Um, with psychedelic medicine, I think it helped me start to see that certain patterns, certain things about me, isn't 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 from me. It, it was passed down to me somehow, some way. It could have been the way I was growing up, the way. My upbringing was the the patterns and the behaviors that were exhibited by my parents or family or things like that um and again this is not to blame anybody it's just um the circumstances were what they were um and then as i'm learning and i'm going down my spiritual journey i'm learning more about karma i'm learning more about past lives and i still i'm just still a beginning student i just want to yeah. put that out there like i'm not an expert in any of this i'm just a student and I'm learning it for myself and psychedelic medicine sometimes can also bring up um things that are not our own that was not my own um but it's it's calling me to do something about it and especially especially if you start if somebody were to start working with more of the shamanic. Um, Traditions and using things like, or medicines like working with medicines like ayahuasca, or huachuma, peyote, or it's just like more of the, like ayahuasca and huachuma, uh, they've been called like the grandmother and the grandfather, and I really like the combination of both. I work with both when I was in Peru and um, ayahuasca and Costa Rica as well too. And the two, it's just like, they can bring up things kind of like their grandpa, their grandmother and their grandfather, they can bring up things from my familial lineage that I didn't even know existed, my mom doesn't even know existed, like my family doesn't even know existed. And in trying to like, it comes up, I have to try to understand it, I have to think about it. I'm like, what does it all mean? How does it manifest in my current life today? Um, and then what do I? What else do I need to do to cleanse it? Uh, and I am on that path right now to do that for me personally. And in terms of writing, so the way the Dandelion Odyssey, the reason I'm thinking it's multi, it's a series is that the first book is about Wyra in her current life. The second book is actually about the intergenerational trauma. And um, what I thought of so far is that give you a snapshot um wyra is actually going to journey back into time and she's going to go back to a different point in time to really see um an event that occurred that kind of started all of this like the curse that i talked about in the dandelion odyssey is just um it's derived like i've already hinted to that in the in my search for the rainbow pearls it's like i've already hinted to like this particular event that happened and she's gonna go back and she's gonna find out more about that event. And then that's as far as I got, But I have to figure out like how to then incorporate the psychedelics medicine piece, Wyra's own personal journeys and what it all kind of means for her. And then also like the plotting out like the various characters that's gonna come into the second book to kind of further develop the story. And I think um, a lot of people, I'm seeing a lot of people talk more, again, It could be my bias i'm paying attention to it more but um more people are talking about intergenerational trauma and what that looks like the best example that i learned about international intergenerational trauma um and this is even before like very early on it was like around um college like i think my senior year my last after i grad soon after i graduated from college I was reading a study about Holocaust survivors, and the Holocaust survivors, they were in this study was saying how um, the Holocaust survivors had a higher percentage of likelihood to get stomach ulcers. And this I was reading and learning more about um, uh, what what is it called? Not genetics, but Epigenetics. epigenetics i was i was learning about epigenetics because my friend at the time he was really into genetics and that's what he's been studying so we've been talking about that and he showed me the study um, where they were talking about holocaust survivors the idea the theory was that based on their experience for whatever reason um they had the, these holocaust survivors and their ge- the generations after them they just tend to have a higher likelihood of developing stomach ulcers. I think it was correlational. Of course, it's not causation. But it was a a really interesting study that was talking about epigenetics and how trauma can be passed down. Um, That was my first exposure to it from what I can recall. And I kind of put that aside for like 10 plus years. And then now I'm coming back around to my own personal journey and seeing, oh, okay, there are things that like people around me are telling me, Hey, have you dealt with this? This it's in your line, it's in your lineage, but right. are you dealing like you know, it's it's calling to you. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And then but then more people started telling me about it. I'm like, why are you guys saying the same things to me yeah. when they've never talked to each other? I've never brought it up. I was like, what are you telling me? Why are you telling me the same things? Like it was just so coincidental. And it took me um, some time like, okay, well, this person's telling me to look into that to like the my family's lineage, that person's telling me to look into my family's lineage, maybe I should look into it. (laughs) (laughs) So then I I started to um, work on that specifically. And again, I think um, this first book, why I search for the rainbow pearls, I've been thinking about this book for six, seven years. Um, the intergenerational piece, which is going to be the focus of the second book, um, is going to um, it's going to take some time for the for me to think through and brainstorm what the characters will look like, what the story will look like, what's the message I want to convey. Um, yeah. But it will be around the theme of intergenerational trauma. And I think when when I look at intergenerational trauma, I think there's like a couple of things about it. I try not to use it as an excuse for my behavior and my way of existing and being in this current life. I I think it sometimes takes the edge and the pressure off of me of of me blaming myself, like, Oh, this is because of something I did. Um, but at the same time, you know, even if I take that pressure off, if I am choosing to do something about it, I'm taking on that responsibility. And sometimes that can add more pressure to me. Um, mm-hmm. But then remembering that, like, maybe I don't have to do it alone. Remembering, to, you know, my family members and yeah. I can yeah. or people around me, my loved ones to support me in that journey, in that process, um, because, you know, I've, I, I learn new things about my past lives and all these things. And it's kind of, it's esoteric. It's like getting into the land of woo, and, and it's like, how can I, how can it really be true? Um, But then I had one person say to me, like, um, even if that did happen in the past, like whatever events it was, I was telling him about, um, how does it impact your life currently? It doesn't really, other than I know something happened in the past. Um, And then if I had certain things, I think like intergenerational trauma, like with the stomach ulcers thing, it may come up as more physiological, maybe a somatic um, manifestation. Um, I've had like a really, I've had like a, I have had chronic pain for about twelve years now that I can't seem to do to like resolve and cure. Um, so personally, I believe that is an expression or a manifestation of something that happened previously um, in mm-hmm. my lineage. Um, but at the same time, like I do my best just to take care of myself and do whatever I can to be in a better state. And of course it's like people tell me, I might be digressing a little bit, but people tell me it's like, oh, it's, it's something physiological in me right now. But after 10, 12 years of trying to explore different modalities, alternative healings, alternative therapies and whatnot, I just don't. I've just kind of hit a wall as to like there's something about this that goes beyond what I am able to do. But maybe I'm just not understanding what I need to do best. And I'm kind of at a point where I'm just like, Okay, it is what it is. But I just need to figure out how to deal with it. So it's kind of like, okay, if I'm manifesting that somatically, and it could be a reason could be that it's related to intergenerational uh, trauma or what, whatnot. At the end of the day, whether it is or not, it doesn't really matter. I, I am living a life where I have to deal with this and I can't, I can't ignore it. And there are other ways that I'm like dealing with it in my ceremonies, working with ayahuasca and whatnot too. But that takes time that takes actual work. And I don't even know what comes up in those experiences. But I did get some things, I did get a benefit, like in one of my last experience, where um, one aspect of my physiological pain got removed. And again, it's just like, I I just want to like caution around this, like this is personal Mm -hmm. experience that's personal to me. And there's a lot more that I don't, I want to keep learning and I don't know that well about mystical practices and stuff like that. But I am getting more into those worlds, yeah. and mis- mystical or spiritual practices. And I, I don't want to like, say, like, oh, you know, like, try this, try that. Um, because I also do believe in science. And I want to. Um, I like the fact that when science is then able to validate or prove or support um, some of the what people have been saying in like mystical practices. Yeah, this is all very long winded way of saying, like,
0: what's that love? Okay. Yep. Sorry about that. So, My my wife was talking right there.
1: Okay. No, it's just like, this is all to kind of say, like, I think, um, you know, one thing is intergenerational trauma, whether it exists or not for individual person. I just wouldn't want to like, it's not an excuse. For how we are currently, and if we do take on the responsibility to do something about it, to like so-called break the curse um, or like break whatever the habits is, um, then it's a responsibility that we're taking on. It's not a. It's not like for me. It's not a light responsibility. It actually can feel heavy at times.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I think there's something to be said about. intergenerational trauma or past life experiences. And, and I think that it can have real time manifestations and it can change your life because I, the fact that an individual can become aware that they have generational trauma, it also means that that individual can learn the long-term lessons that were trying to be taught throughout the generations. And the, the, The thing that happened to your grandma may have happened different to your mom and they may not have been aware of it. They may just have have felt the consequences of it. But the fact that you become aware of it means that you are able to see what the lesson is supposed to be in there. And then you can make the change in that. And sometimes I think that that's what could be the manifestation of pressure or anxiety or pain is that there is something deep inside of you that is begging you to solve that problem. Like this is something that you can fix and you know you can fix it, but you don't thoroughly understand how to fix it. But it's, it's the awareness manifesting itself as pain. And when you come Mm. to the, you know what I mean? It's like, you're almost there. I'm going to push it out of you. Like it's, it's that pain that gives you the, you know, you spoke earlier about the difference between fear and excitement is breath. Maybe the, the same thing between pain and clarity is understanding like oh once you figure out what that is then that pain turns into a drive or maybe you need that pain to write this next book so that you can investigate the inner that trauma right there and you know i i think that there's real real and i think this is new i think that the people that break the cycle are people that are aware that these things have happened in their families and they, they are sort of the person that's supposed to help their family solve it. Cause once you figure it out, now your kid doesn't have to solve it. And in some mm-hmm. ways your parents had to go through all that so that you could become aware of it. You know, they were the mm-hmm. person that carried the burden and didn't know why they just carried it like a, like a, the same way that some people are carriers of a certain chromosome that can lead to a disease, so too are some people the carriers of this trauma that can lead to you being the person that it manifests in. And that doesn't have to be a disease. It can be an awakening. Right, on some yeah, level.
1: absolutely. <laughs> and I like that, that, you know, the difference between pain and clarity is that understanding. Um, and as you're talking about it, it makes me think a lot about the Asian-American um, experience. Um yeah even if we don't look at past lives or anything like mystical, right? Just one of the things is like the history of Asian Americans. Everybody's got a history, don't get me wrong, but just because I'm looking at my community, it's like in the Chinese community, people who went through the cultural revolutions, like people of my grandmother's generation, or then, and then the generation after that, how do they grow up? How do they live? Like there's certain experiences that they have um, that can really affect the way they are, the way they behave and their perspectives in life and themselves and people. And those habits, those ways that like you, as kids, like you just learned from your parents. And especially if we aren't really talking about emotions and connecting and whatnot, it's like, it's even harder. It's just, you're adapting to the upbringing, yeah. To the best of your ability as a child or like if um growing up um i didn't learn this from school but i learned about a lot about asian american history and history of like some other asian cultures and countries from my community like learning about the Khmer rouge learning about mm-hmm. uh the the war in vietnam the but then like the the tension and the conflict between the japanese and the korean and it's just that all of this has effects on people and there are reasons why they left their countries um, to try to find a better life elsewhere, opportunities elsewhere. But those experiences kind of stay with them and they, however they dealt with it and in the best way they can, um, they live their life. but if they didn't really, release those trauma you know it's it stays a part of them um i think peter levine he he says a i think he's a therapist but from what i've learned is like the idea of trauma it's like it's not in the event it's in the nervous system like it's like we remember it somehow um so again if it's like a part of us and we just kind of move along life with it then it then somehow it's it comes out through our behavior somehow it might be like with school it's like well i don't want to go to school and then you keep on dropping out like certain behaviors come up and you're like why is that but yeah might have had this source this um goes back to the source of like a really painful event that was really hard to deal with and they deal with it however best they can which is I think for me, if there's something that's painful, I tend to ignore it or like, I try to shield it away from everything else, but shielding it away doesn't mean that it goes away. It's just put away in a box somewhere and and shield it away from the rest of me, but it's still part of me. Um, And I think it's like the best example I've seen in my personal life is like when I started doing this type of work, not just with the psychedelic medicine, but all the work I do afterwards to integrate Um, the pieces that I've learned, once I started shifting how I behaved, and also shifting my perspective, because now I understand how my parents grew up, or how my grandparents grew up, then that understanding can lead to compassion. And by leaning into compassion, it's like, okay, now I don't have to feel upset, or like, okay, now I can really feel for them right I try to understand what perspectives they're coming from and it's like oh okay this is why they behave or say certain things or this is like how they go about the world this is how they see the world even if i don't agree i can accept that this is what they do based on their experiences in life
0: yeah you know it, it reminds me of like I, I, I try to put it like in a story form like imagine like a beautiful purple dandelion and it's being grown in 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 europe in it's being grown in europe or in japan or china or somewhere mm-hmm. and it's it's in this environment where it's grown for generations but that environment is becoming toxic and so someone rips that dandelion from its roots and it transplants it to this new soil in california mm-hmm. and then they, the first generation of it That first, the next generation of that downland may not grow to the extent that it would have grown in its natural soil. And it Mm -hmm. may take, it might die. But you know what? Maybe after three or four generations, it adapts to the sunlight, it adapts to the air. And then it begins to bloom not only a purple flower, but like a purple yellowish flower that's even more beautiful than the flower that it came from. But it has to adapt to the new environment. It has to be, hey, it's a lot hotter over here. Yeah, I, don't, I, don't, I used to have a lot more water or I used to get mm-hmm. water there and it, it doesn't even know because it was ripped from its roots and it's Man. trying to create new roots over here. Like <laughs> on some level, we can learn so much from these plants and epigenetics and, and muscle memory and plant memory. And I, I think that that is what the plants medicine is trying to tell us. is like, look, we're the same. If we're taken from here and planted there, that's a it's beautiful, but there's a there's real problems with that, and they don't have to be problems. But there's real complications with it. And if we want to do that, we have to look to the way that the earth, you know, the the maybe the earth grows people the way an apple tree grows apples. You know, and there's certain environments in which things grow. <laughs> I don't know. It's I think there's yeah. something there though.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think a, a lot of psychedelic medicine, from what I hear from people and stories I've heard, is that it does help people feel more connected to nature yeah
0: me too yeah me too.
1: how can we not be like we are a part of nature
0: there's so much comfort in that to to Mm -hmm. be able to look around and just see the struggle that's happening in your garden and realize like that's what's happening inside you and there's a lot of beauty there's a lot of thorns there's a lot of flowers but ultimately there's a plan If you know that, like it can give you some confidence and some faith and when the times are dark, you know, it's (laughs) it's crazy to think about.
1: Yeah.
0: (laughs) Serena, I'm so stoked for your book. I'm so stoked it's a series and I'm so stoked that you wrote this. And I, I can't wait to I haven't read it yet, but I'm really looking forward to reading it and giving you some feedback on it and checking out the series. And I, I hope that everybody that's listening today will go down to the show notes and go to Amazon and pick it up. But before I let you go, what do you have coming up? What are you excited about? Where can people find you?
1: Um, so I'm this year, I'm taking a step back from writing. I'm going to explore my other creative side with visual arts. I'm trying to work on a psychedelic coloring book. And... Um, so that's gonna start next February, and um, but I'm gonna take it a little bit slower this time, pace it according to my schedule and not to um, another person's deadlines and schedules and whatnot. Good idea. <laughs> just, just thinking a little bit easier this yeah. year. Um, people can find me on my LinkedIn. Um, I don't know if I have the LinkedIn, but you can also check out my updates on Instagram. I'm at um, serena.pens That's my Instagram handle okay. and I actually have a website but I haven't published it yet or it is published I just haven't really told people about it yet um, it's serenawu.com and once I you know get things situated with my firm I'm going to focus more on like thinking through the content I want to put out there into the world, put into the um, website and then also Instagram
0: as well, too. Nice. Well, hang on briefly afterwards. I'm going to hang up with the people, but I just want to talk to you real briefly afterwards. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as we did. Serena is an amazing author and an amazing person, and I really appreciate the the authenticity and the vulnerability with our conversation today. So thank you for that. And ladies and gentlemen, I hope you have a beautiful day. That's all we got. Aloha.